In three, two, one. Welcome back to another episode of What the Bleep Are They Talking About? The podcast where we help you understand what everybody is talking about in the news today. I'm Jack. I'm Jennifer. And before we get started, make sure you share this content with everybody. And make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on all the social media. But remember, guys, only follow us and our content or we get really sad. But seriously, make sure you get perspectives from all over the place because we don't want you being left into the dark like some people in the world today. And Jennifer, on today's podcast, we're going to be doing something extra special that we've started doing to help people not be quite so in the dark. We are going to be interviewing a political candidate from Florida District Number 26, which is all the way at the bottom of Florida, covering much of the Everglades, South Miami, and the Florida Keys. This candidate, a progressive Democrat, is running against Republican representative and former twice-elected mayor of Miami-Dade County, Carlos Jimenez, who recently came into office in January of 2021. So he's a newbie. This candidate has lived most of his life in Miami, except for when he lived up in the tri-state area, including Philadelphia, which is near yours truly, this guy. His worldview is shaped by a life of, quote, deep poverty and the struggles that come with it. Juan and his family are no strangers to the hard work and sacrifice needed to overcome seemingly insurmountable economic barriers. His campaign focuses on issues such as Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, forgiving student loans, creating public housing, increasing the federal minimum wage, and focusing on those in need. This candidate is Juan Paredes, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show with us. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. It's really a pleasure. Honestly, it's an honor uh, to be on the show. And it's it's really respectable what you guys do, being able to bring up obscure voices to give a more of a notoriety, more of a status in the in the broader public. So that way they can um, have the voice out there because I know how hard after starting my campaign it is to get notarized. So um, I appreciate both of you guys for having me on. Absolutely. And why don't you tell the voters a little bit about yourself before we get started? Yeah, so I grew up most of my life in Miami. I spent um, a couple, like you said, I spent some time in the tri-state area. I lived in Philadelphia for about a year, and then I've also lived in New Jersey for about four years or so. And I, I, through my time, I've lived in a cycle of poverty. So there are times where I've, we've had help and we've had luck which allowed us to um, not have so much struggle in certain times of my life. But generally, uh, poverty is a cycle. You get you get into the deepest parts of poverty. You hit a certain barrier of welfare, of welfare benefits. You lift yourself up more. And then uh, once again, because as you start getting as you start getting income, welfare benefits start disappearing. You start going back to cycle of poverty. Um, and it's especially rough for people who don't have any children. Having children actually gives you more uh, more benefits from the state. So if you don't have any children, it's especially rough. But um, it's it's not something that I think is is tolerable for a country of our size and our wealth. There's countries that are much smaller with much less wealth that can provide much more for their citizens. And it's not that we are incapable of doing it. It's that we don't have the political will because the incentives of the current structure uh, 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 propagate a system and a paradigm that perpetuates this poverty. So uh, that's why I'm running specifically. 
That sounds great. And we'll get into all of that. And we'll challenge a few of your <laughs> beliefs along the way. But for the viewers, our interview with Juan will be done in four 15-minute segments, each exploring who he is, what his political beliefs are, exploring his thoughts on current trending topics, and finally asking him to elaborate on some quotes of his that caught our eye. So Jennifer has a timer, I have the tough questions, and Juan has the answers. So let's get started. Segment one, who are you? Many people paint political parties in a solid shade of red or blue, failing to realize uh, the political spectrum that exists even inside the parties themselves. You mentioned to me that you are, were politically heterodox, yet you are noted as a progressive by the People's Gauntlet, an organization that vets progressives, and you note on your ballotpedia that you look up to libertarian socialist Noam Chomsky. So my question to you is how do you identify, where did you get your political beliefs, and how do you identify for the average voter? So I got my political be beliefs in a wide range of thinkers. Um, Noam Chomsky is a large, is a major part of that, of course. Um, he speaks is several truths of the United States hegemony and its uh, and, and the way that it it flexes its power throughout the world to maintain a global system of its creation after World War II. Um, I I really liked. The, the analysis of the United States and its politics from Noam Chomsky, but I've also had a lot of influences from uh, thinkers like Adam Smith. I've, I've read The Wealth of Nations from Adam Smith. I've also read um, David Ricardo's book, um, as well as Peter Kropotkin. So it's also on the other side as well from, from that political spectrum. Um, it, from when I, when I started getting into politics, it was mostly um, I would say after Bernie Sanders challenged Hillary Clinton. I've heard of Bernie Sanders before that, but um, I never expected him to actually run for president. And I've actually, especially not when Hillary Clinton was supposed to be the next coronated um, uh, person to be president by the DNC. I never expected him to actually challenge Hillary Clinton, even though there were rumors about it happening a little bit before it happened. So uh, once he did, I, I looked more into Bernie Sanders, of course, and um, he, his, his integrity inspired me to, to get more involved in politics. He was involved in, political, uh, in the political arena for in his early 20s, um, even in the civil rights movement. So um, his integrity and his, his determination to change things uh, inspired me to want to do the same. And as I got more into politics, there, there, was, there has been a lot of these labels, a lot of these categories that are around a lot of these policies. And I wasn't sure exactly what was true, what was not at the very beginning. So I started reading more into, um, I started reading more into politics myself. First, I started listening to Noam Chomsky um, as he was somebody I don't exactly remember where I found the first video. I think it was a recommendation of some kind, or just from my political interests. Um, but after I saw one video of his, it started cascading into a deep dive. And then after that, um, he, he mentioned a lot of things that I wasn't sure were true or not. So I started reading more into those things. It led, eventually led me to certain authors, uh, notably Adam Smith, Peter Kropotkin, which was one of Noam Chomsky's biggest influences as well. 
um, uh, David Ricardo because Adam Smith, uh, well, David Ricardo um, challenged Adam Smith in certain things. Um, and so did, um, and so did Karl Marx also challenge Adam Smith and David Ricardo on a lot of things. So it led me to, re to re uh, read David Ricardo's book as well. And over time, I just started trying to incorporate the things that I thought made sense from their belief systems and um, discard things that I didn't exactly think made sense. Like uh, Adam Smith, Invisible Hand is a good, is a good thing uh, for me to use as an example, even though he mentions it once in his entire book. A lot of people misinterpret it. He's saying that the um, the 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 home bias of uh, of people who are the masters of capital would lead them to benefit their state more than themselves, as if they were guided by an, an invisible hand to do so, just because they are partial to where they to where they're from. And clearly, modern times have shown that theory to be wrong. <laughs> they would more likely benefit themselves, even though it's detrimental to the state. So, um, or at the time there was no state, but um, uh, to, to where they live. And so it, things like that, like things that don't really make sense to me, I discard, but I think there's value in all, all different sides of the political spectrum. There's pieces that are true and there's pieces that are false. And it depends on you just to look at them and parse out for yourself what's right and what's wrong exactly people aren't going to be right about everything all of the time and as long as you're willing to listen to other people and challenge ideas i think that's the best path forward and it's i think it's the best way we can at least get along rather than vilifying every idea one political party has right i mean yeah there's there's arguments to having personal freedom and then there's arguments to having um collective and collective incentives it's depending on um, where the line is drawn. That's the most important thing. At the end of the day, everybody wants the same thing, better material conditions. So we just, and if you believe one side is, um, it, their path to get there is is misinformed or um, incorrect in some way, instead of vilifying, I'd rather have the discussion and try to convince the other side uh, of a different path or a different way of getting there through, um, through proper justification and so i like to believe i like to think that my belief systems are well justified so <laughs> so before moving to the next question do you think bernie sanders has a shot in the 2024 election um i i don't mostly because um in, in his first campaign there were there was a lot of collusion between hillary clinton and the dnc that is mm -hmm. undeniable um donald brazil has has a lot of a lot of uh, insight into the ways that they colluded with Hillary Clinton, making sure that the, the that the debates were at certain times, giving her the answers beforehand, stuff like that. Um, it's not quite conspiratorial. I'm not going to say it's quite conspiratorial as it was rigged specifically for her, but she had a heavy hand, especially with the super delegates. She had a she leaned the scale on her side, um, and then in the twenty in the 2020 election, it was more fair. It was. It wasn't quite as um, the, uh, Joe Biden didn't have quite as much control over the DNC as Hillary Clinton did, um, and her Bernie Sanders still had struggles. Of course, there was the fear of Donald Trump, but he had struggles communicating why he would be more effective as a president um, uh, from the aftermath of Donald Trump, and also um, some troubles with 
with the way he organized his his uh, campaign. For example, he didn't seek endorsement from um, from uh, Clyburn in South Carolina, which led which led to um, him losing in in that state as well. Which would have been which would have been uh, Joe Biden's state, which would have been great if he won. So um, there's you know there there the, the showed that he he did make some missteps. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying after losing twice um, and him having to change the way he does things, it's not impossible. It's diff- it, 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 I find it hard to believe that he can he can succeed in the next in 2024. But at the same time, he's already done a lot to change politics in America uh, permanently in a massive way. So I think he's I think he's gained a lot of success. I think his campaign was successful. Even if he didn't become president for, uh, specifically, and people don't realize, I am actually so so back in 2016, I actually would have voted for Bernie Sanders. I was young, I was in college, <laughs> and he was actually very interesting to me. So it was kind of disappointing when that didn't work out. But yes, moving to our likewise. next question, according to a poll by the Pew Research Center published in November of 2021, progressive Democrats make up only 12 percent of the Democratic Party and 6 percent of U.S. voters nationally. Furthermore, according to a New York Times article published in November of 2020, the flip of District 26, among others, from Democrat to Republican came as a surprise and an oversight of the Democratic Party as Cuban and Venezuelan voters were apprehensive towards the socialized policies of the left. My question for you is, was this apprehension towards socialized policies justifiable? How do your policies reflect, and how do your policies reflect the views of the voters of your districts and the voters of the nation at large? Yeah, so uh, that that's another reason why I stay away from um, these kind of labels is because it can damage the actual discussion at hand, which are the actual policies. Uh, people look at the labels and then they quickly dismiss the actual discussion behind the labels. Um, I don't necessarily call myself a socialist in any way, mostly because if you ask two different people what socialist means, uh, they'll give you two different answers. And uh, there is an academic understanding of what socialism is, but most people are not going to are not going to purport to the academic understanding. They're going to look at the colloquial term that everybody uses and, and and it's very muddied. It doesn't really have much of a meaning. It, it's used to people's advantage in, in either sides of the aisle. Um, and it doesn't really it doesn't really explain anything. So I don't really like to use the term only because it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, what, I, what I want are policies that make it so uh, it tackles the direct the direct route of where poverty, exists, where it comes from, what generates poverty. Uh, my goal is to make it so poverty is either a, a small issue in the United States or no issue at all if possible. And we have the technology, we have the, the resources to make it so we don't, uh, the normal citizens in the United States or basically any citizen in the United States doesn't have to deal with poverty. There are countries that are very close to a situation like that, Finland, for example. Um, Poverty is something that is rare, if it happens at all, and they have they have welfare benefits, welfare programs that that tackle poverty specifically, and we can do it at a much better, much larger scale with our uh, wealth and influence. So, um, if that makes me socialist to some people, fine. If that does, if that does, um, if that doesn't make me socialist to other people, that's fine too. Um, but 
I, I stay away from those labels specifically because um, they muddy the water. They, they don't let people have the proper discussion. And once you have that discussion, I think a lot of the people that were apprehensive would um, be less apprehensive to vote for that same person. So I have a question further down the line, but I think it's pretty fitting here. Do you think one of the biggest problems we have politically in this country is both factions, the left and the right, they tend to agree on a lot of things, but the problem is they're using different vocabulary. So I understand that when someone uses the term democratic socialist, they don't actually mean that they're a socialist. But to the right, they utilize the old definition as in socialist, meaning government control of resources. Do you think that difference in language that we use is really adding to the political divide in our country? Well, I would say that um, the right also has a misunderstanding of what socialist means um, in the, I would say, academic sense of the term as well, in the in the proper sense of the term. Uh, but the left also doesn't use it properly either. So you're correct. They use the same word, but they have different meanings. But I would argue that they're both incorrect. Um, the the left uses democratic socialism in a way that a lot of the world uses social democracy. Uh, or a lot of the world would say is center-left, where they want a, a strong welfare state, but still maintain the same underlying capitalist system of private control and profit incentives. Um, and while a true democratic socialist would want to create a society that is that, that the means of production are owned by the people who create the, the, the commodities, and how that form takes place can vary wildly um but the 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 end of the day is how private how, how ownership is distributed is the difference between uh capitalist and socialist society and i would even say that the united states isn't necessarily fully capitalist in the in the way that adam smith envisioned capitalism as well either so um the so 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 the terms that they use are the same like they use the same words but they mean entirely different things on both sides. And they're both using it in a way to, in, in a sense of propaganda to um, further their own, their own goals. Um, but I, I, using those terms in that way, at the end of the day, I think is ultimately destructive. I think that if you wanna use a term, uh, you should create a new one. If you, if you wanna categorize yourself, um, you shouldn't use democratic socialism that already has a lot of a lot of uh, uh, baggage from previous propaganda of, of years ago that still exists today, and then try to reuse that word for something else. It's just, just going to muddy the waters. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more because it's very confusing to people who aren't in the club to know what you mean, and it's really doing a disservice for, for anyone who is changing the definitions to words that people usually uh, are, are used to understanding. So the exactly. last question in this segment. In a Gallup poll released in October of 2021, American trust in the media was at its lowest since 2016. According to the poll, only 36% of Americans had a great deal or fair amount of trust in the media. My question for you is where do you get your news? Who do you listen to and who do you trust? Uh, so actually, I get my news from uh, a lot of the same places. I don't necessarily trust any news media at all, honestly. <laughs> I think they all have their own their own uh, biases that they that that is inherent to their institution. So, 
um, CNN is going to purport the news and then they're going to purport it in a light that is that or they're going to frame it in a way that uh, furthers their own preconceived notions. And uh, Fox News is more uh, would would uh, would peddle misinformation more than CNN would. Um, you can see that, for example, with the uh, with, with with the way they speak of COVID and vaccines, they would use misinformation a lot more, which I think is particularly um, dangerous. But other than not using misinformation, every single news organization is going to frame the discussion in a certain way because it it, it furthers their own uh, paradigm. I think that um, you shouldn't trust any news organization, but you can you, you can look at you can look at the way they you can look at what they're saying and then correct for their framing. Um, you can understand what their incentives are, why, like what what would lead them to say what they say, and then correct for that in your uh, in your own way to extract the truth out of anything that they're reporting. Fox News is you have to look into it a little more because you want to make sure that the information is correct with them. That's a, that's an extra barrier. Um, but the everybody else is going to have some kind of framing that you need to correct for. Um, everybody everybody's biased in some way, and that's always going to leak down in the reporting, no matter how factual they try to be. Um, I I think I think Al Jazeera does a good job of trying to be as neutral as possible as one of like the large news organizations. But um, to find to find truth more readily, you have to look at a smaller publication like The Nation. Um, for example, is a good one. Democracy Now is also a really good one if you want to find um, less of the bias framing, but it still exists, of course. Absolutely. And that's why we put at the beginning of all of our videos, we say to get perspectives from all over the place because sometimes newspapers leave out some details. Sometimes others add a whole lot of details and more information that helps you get to the bottom of the story. So yeah, we you, are you moving can... on to the next just... section. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say one thing. You can sure. um, one thing that really uh, uh, helped me understand um, how biased news organizations are always going to be is uh, reading Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent, where he shows how they would frame the same exact situation. For example, um, the killing of of um, of one of the popes over in the Balkans. He they they would frame that as terrible, but if they kill the priest over in let's say Colombia. Um, they, which is, and essentially the same thing. Uh, it was it was justified because uh, the priest was possibly communist or something like that. Um, so they would, even though the situations are basically the same, they would frame it differently because once one is acceptable and the other one is unacceptable, um, areas of the world. So um, I, I would say reading manufacturing consent shines a light on on how the media reports on things even though it's a little different nowadays than it was back then and that's actually something i came to realize not recently but but a few months ago so so fairly recently is the framing devices that they use that they use in news articles to get you to think a certain way so right. section number two personal views so the current administration was presented during the 2020 election cycle as a return to a moderate form of Democrat governance. Since inauguration, progressive, 
progressive agenda items have been the focal point of the Biden administration. According to a Quinnipiac poll from yesterday, the administration's approval rating has sunk to 33%. 98% of Republicans disapprove, of course, 75% of independents disapprove, and 25% of Democrats approve. Running as a progressive, how would you score the Biden administration thus far? Um, well, it depends on if you want like a letter score or number score specifically. Uh, uh, do, the, wanna... do the frowny face to the smiling face. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would say, yeah, I, I would say, I would say not entirely frowny face, um, because he, he could have been a lot worse. Um, but, um, he's an expected still semi frowny face. Um, he, he, there, there are things that he's done that are beneficial like for example raising the minimum wage for federal workers specifically has been really good even though he had the opportunity to raise it for everybody by bypassing the um the the senate parliamentarian uh since since the the um vice president has the ability to to dismiss the ruling he could have asked kamala harris to allow it within the uh within the the budget reconciliation regardless of what the senate parliamentarian said but um he 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 didn't uh, he he accepted her ruling when he didn't have to and while it was in his authority not to shows to me that he's not as committed as uh hiring the minimum wage as he said he was in his campaign in his uh campaign promises so i think that joe biden but i expected that from joe biden i didn't expect him to actually be considering his past actually um uh for improving the minimum wage though i hoped for the be- i hope differently but i expected him not to be so it's expected but it's very much a frowny face and the fact that he he had he owns both the house and the senate even if it's a, a minor uh, majority he owns both the house and the senate after decades of having either maybe one or neither um, or almost, or actually more than a decade, and hasn't been several decades just yet. But um, it's over a decade since he's since we've had control of both, and he's done nothing with it specifically to to increase people's material conditions in a large way. And people are going to see that as the Democrats get power, they do nothing with it, and so voting for them again is just futile. And it's gonna it's gonna incentive it's going to help donald trump get reelected in 2024 if he continues to make it so people's material conditions are improved but he only has a year left because if he doesn't if he doesn't do it within the year it's hard to say if he's going to maintain the house and the senate and then there goes the rest of uh, his administration so it seemed from my research on you that your view of biden and correct me if i'm wrong that he's not being aggressive enough yeah, he Biden has um, the the ability to maintain the control within the House and Senate. Um, the reason why Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema can control the House and the Senate is because Biden doesn't press them not you know, to vote in the way that he wants them to. He, uh, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin are completely dependent on the DNC for their reelection. They can't win without the DNC unless they go Republican. But um, the Republican establishment isn't very well, very much liked by Republicans either. It's mostly Donald Trump who owns the party at this point. 
So it's hard to say that he's going to win, even if he goes Republican. And for him to win as Democrat, he's completely beholden to the DNC. And he also, and there's also a lot of uh, white collar crime that you can you you can uh, uh, threaten them with if they don't if they if they don't purport because a lot of the a lot of that a lot of the stuff is a lot of that uh, white collar crime is unenforced. Um, uh, putting his children in positions where they're not supposed to be because of nepotism. Um, uh, there was an issue with his daughter and um, and patent rights uh, recently, I believe, with with uh, with healthcare. Uh, I, I, I haven't looked too much into that specifically because um, it's it, it's outside of the discussion generally, and also it's not really relevant to. Um, the policies that Joe Biden is talking about, uh, not Joe, Biden, uh, Joe Manchin is talking about, but the, he, he there's a lot of ways for him to apply pressure to Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema as the president of the United States. There's a lot of way for him to apply pressure to have them fall in line, but he doesn't because it's to it's also to his benefit. If he changes a lot, uh, if he provides those benefits, he's expected to go further and. Um, and if he doesn't, then he'll be blamed. So Joe Manchin could be the scapegoat, and it benefits him and his district. Joe Biden doesn't have to pass those policies and go further, uh, and everybody wins in that scenario. So. so I think that is a good segue to my next question about the filibuster. So in 2013, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid instituted the nuclear option, which brought the Senate votes needed to approve presidential nominees to a simple majority. In 2017, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell used the nuclear option again to drop the votes needed to approve the Supreme Court nominees to a simple majority. Now, Senate Leader Chuck Schumer and much of the Democratic Party is calling for an end to the filibuster for legislation. Where do you stand on ending the filibuster, and does past president make future actions justifiable? In other words, just because we did it in 2013 and 2017, does that justify doing it now? Yeah, I think I think ending the filibuster is a good idea because it is one of the mechanisms created to prevent um, change between administrations. I mean, of course, if you end the filibuster, it benefits the Republicans. But at the same time, um, it harms the Democrats to maintain it because it allows the Republicans in such a slim majority to to block uh, positions. So it, it is to their benefit to uh, to get rid of the filibuster. And I also I think it is it, it is the correct thing to do, mostly because if without with the filibuster, it allows the the minority party to block change when the people necessarily voted for the majority to be in power, even if that's a Republican. Um, they've, they were voted in by majority vote, even if it's not um, a plurality. Like, the, for example, in, in 2016, uh, Donald Trump won because of the, because of the, um, of the electoral college that didn't get the majority, the plurality of the votes. Um, there, there are instances where that happens, and, that would, and that's problematic. But that's a different problem that you have to fix, and you don't. And putting and creating the filibuster doesn't stop that from happening. It just prevents you from removing any damage he's done once you gain power again uh, uh, as the Democratic Party. So, like, if if that's a problem, then that's something you have to fix through other through other solutions. But the filibuster is actually detrimental for you to actually pass those solutions. 
at all. Uh, I'm totally against the filibuster. So I think we have time for one more question in this segment, and it's a big one. So according to the Tax Foundation and historical data obtained on the official White House website, the top 1% of taxpayers, which includes 1.3 million households uh, that earn over $500,000 per year, pay 40.1% of all of the income taxes. That is out of 130 million American taxpayers. Furthermore, the top 50% of income earners paid 97.1% of all income taxes, while the bottom 50% paid 2.9% of those income taxes. Furthermore, the top 1% paid an average tax rate of 25.4%, while the bottom 50% paid an average tax rate of 3.4%. As someone who wants to, quote, redistribute wealth more fairly, explain how the current tax system is unfair, or if you agree that the tax system is fair, do you simply believe that the top 1% should just be paying more on top of what they're already paying? Yeah, uh, the the way the wealth is distributed now is um, the the income tax that you laid out, they pay more of the income tax in total, but the proportion of their income that they pay in comparison to the proportion, um, the lower percentage of that number pays. Um, the top uh, 50% pays a much smaller proportion of their income tax than the bottom 50% of the country. In fact, um, it, it, they, they maintain wealth not through income, but through uh, assets that they own through stocks and um, different, different assets that are non-liquid and not necessarily income. Most of the most of the taxes, most of the money they get are through capital gains, and the taxes and capital gains are tiny, um, like thirteen percent, something like that. It, it the that allows them to main to accumulate wealth uh, at, at a much faster rate than the bottom percentage, and then use that wealth to influence politics to increase the velocity in which they accumulate that wealth. Um, my issue is not so much of redistributing like if they have the wealth now at this point uh it's hard to it's it's hard to redistribute it once they have it but you can you can reduce the velocity of which they may, of which they accumulate that wealth by uh increasing capital gains tax putting in a transaction tax in in uh the stock market um you can you and the the, the income tax is not particularly bad but the enforcement is is not very good. Uh, we can improve. We can we can strengthen the IRS and allow them to enforce the income tax much better and um, and at much larger scales. They can't even tackle certain cases of of uh, tax avoidance of if once you get uh, once you get high enough in money because you still don't have the resources to the IRS specifically. So um, the enforcement of of taxes of the income taxes abysmal. Um, so doing these things can can priv- can reduce the velocity of which somebody can accumulate more wealth um, and then we and then we can also have a discussion on taxing the wealth that they already have um, but the most important thing is making sure that the ways that they influence our politics to accumulate wealth at a much faster rate is the more detrimental issue do you think there's something to be said about uh, economic education. So when I look at people who are are very wealthy versus people who are not wealthy, I think about what resources do they have to their disposal to optimize the tax code, right? So 
taxes, there's a necessity for taxes to be fair. Um, but when you look at people who are wealthy, they can afford really good accountants who know the tax code, who know what deductibles they can take, who know how to save them the most money. But then you look at lower income individuals who don't have the money to expend on a really good accountant to save the same amount of, of, of money. Do you think something's to be said about kind of the disparation in, in economic education? Yeah, and uh, I think edu economic education is is very bad in the United States, mostly because the orthodox the orthodox thinking of economics it it, it perpetuates a certain a certain uh, type of economics where they're focused on um, how how certain mathematical models uh, improve the efficiency of the current system that exists in. It doesn't necessarily challenge the system. It doesn't necessarily challenge how things work, but how how you can function within the system already um, in, in the orthodox economics. Um, and, that, and also, the, when it comes to the taxes, um, that's, a that, that's a separate issue because um, certain tax companies that exist now prevent the government from providing a simple solution for people to do their taxes and for people to um, uh, benefit from, from uh, the, the, uh, the, the tax uh, um, structure, uh, the I forgot the word you use specifically for um, wealthy people. The tax code. They they they, mm -hmm. they they prevent the government from creating simple solutions or easy avenues for uh, people to to use that tax code and to their benefit. Uh, if they if the government want to create their version of, for example, HR block software, um, they if that people can use for free, they get lobbied by those tax companies because then it prevents them from making a profit. Um, and I think that it's important to in the in in the short term to allow people to benefit from the tax code, but I think the fundamental problem is the way taxes are structured already. So, giving people the ability to better use the tax code, the current tax code, to their benefit can provide some some utility to people in the short term. But in the long term, the problem still lies with um, the way the wealthy accumulates their wealth. So, um, in the, they that would need a restructuring in taxes altogether, not necessarily how um, people benefit from the taxes in the lower end. They need to restructure how taxes are taken entirely. Um, and I think that's the that's the ultimate goal. But, but I do agree that the reason why um, that doesn't get talked about enough is because of a lot of economic literacy throughout our country. And I think that's primarily because of the economic orthodox thinking that exists within the United States and how it wants to maintain the current paradigm and actually benefits from people not knowing so much about the economic realities of our country. So. And I always talk about this before moving on to the next segment. I always talk about this class that I took in 10th grade. It was a stock class, and it was an elective. And I just so happened to take it, and it was a class that, that really changed my life. You know, I worked when I was 12 years old. You know, uh, I was landscaping, and I was detailing cars. But it wasn't until I took that class that I really understood how to use the money that I already earned to, to, to make a little bit more money through investing right. and just really capitalizing on what I had, putting my, putting my money to work anyway. But section three, trending topics. 
congressmen over the last several months, including Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren, have attacked Elon Musk, claiming that he, along with other billionaires, does not pay his fair share in taxes. So apparently we're going to continue with the tax questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean the structure it that way. Um, it is true that Elon Musk does not pay income tax, but the reason for this is because he does not take in income. However, Elon Musk does pay capital gains tax when he sells his stocks. How do you respond? Yeah, like, and like I said, capital gains is a much, much smaller tax than income specifically. Um, and most of their wealth, for, for the most part of people, once they reach that level, well, even before they reach that level of wealth, most of it's going to come from capital gains. And all the, uh, most people who, who have that kind of wealth live off the, uh, off the dividends and returns from their stock than they do from actually getting any income from uh, the company that they that they run, that's what and most of their and most of their uh, 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 income is paid in stocks. That was that way. Um, it's not really it's not really taxed in the same way as somebody who earns wages. So it, it, it's it's a fair criticism. Um, I didn't see what Elon Musk said in response to their. Criticism. Oh, you know, it's always something brash. Yeah. Sassy. <laughs> Sassy, yeah, of yes. course. <laughs> yeah, and and of course it's dismissive because it benefits him, so he's not going to admit to the reality. Um, but I think I think that specifically him as an example, not just him, also Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and all mm -hmm. of those people within that stratus and even and even under them. I think anybody who's become a billionaire does so eventually through the exploitation of their uh, of their lower paid people in the same uh, corporate firm they 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 exploit they exploit um, cheap labor abroad and they exploit uh, they exploit the labor um, from home and they and through the combination of that they can become billionaires there's no way and you can become billionaire through your own specific hard work if you don't you don't work hard 300 times 5000 times harder than the lowest paid member and so we always bring up Elon Musk because, and maybe, let's see if you agree with this or disagree. So it always seems like the the, the senators on the, on, the, on, the, on the Democratic side are always attacking Elon Musk and rather than Jeff Bezos as much. They do attack Jeff Bezos and other billionaires, but it seems like they're coming after Elon Musk because he is sassy and it almost seems like he's not controllable. What would, would you, what is your thought on that? Um. I would say that the people who attack Elon Musk would also attack Jeff Bezos equally as much. Like Bernie Sanders has attacked Jeff Bezos for the wages that he pays to his workers and uh, increased their wages. Of course, Amazon is not is no fool, and they found ways to compensate by taking away stock options and different benefits that they had. But uh, he he used the public opinion to force Amazon to increase their um, their their employees' wages. Um, he attacks McDonald's um, all the time. Uh, for their wages, and they also helped in improving their wages as well. So I think that he would equally attack both um, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. I think that Elon Musk does get attacked more often by centrist Democrats, but not for the same reasons. Generally, it's usually because of something conservative he said or something on about the coronavirus that he said that was that was misinformation or incorrect. Um, they would he he sets himself up for more attacks because he's more conservative and he um, says more conservative things. Um, but it's usually, usually if it's if it's centrist Democrats are attacking him on more social issues than necessarily than economic issues. Usually, people who attack him on economic issues would attack him just as much as they would attack Jeff Bezos or anyone else who makes as makes as much wealth as he does. Honestly, 
So moving on. So the Supreme Court on Thursday struck down the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for businesses, while at the same time upholding it for healthcare workers. In a six to three decision, the court wrote, quote, OSHA has never before imposed such a mandate, nor has Congress. Indeed, although Congress has enacted significant legislation addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, it has declined to enact any measure similar to what OSHA has promulgated here. Do you agree with this decision? And if you were elected to Congress, would you push to legislate a vaccine mandate? Um, I would uh, I would legislate a vaccine mandate, but I don't think um, a vaccine mandate should force everyone to get vaccinated. I just think that um, it provides a a lot of power to the state, um, which would not be able to be removed once given to them. Look at um, look at um, the the Patriot Act, for example. It, once you give power to a state, you can't remove that power. I don't want to open that Pandora's Pandora's box again. But I do think that you should give people an option, whether it's to get tested or to get vaccinated. And if you don't want to get, to get vaccinated, fine, that's your choice. You cannot get vaccinated, but you must be tested to um, do things like fly in a plane or, um, to, or, or uh, to do certain, certain activities that, would, that are, ext- are extraordinarily high risk of infection. Um, we have to make sure that people who are in, who who do have coronavirus who do have the coronavirus disease um, COVID aren't going to infect other people. So there has to be measures taking place. I think a vaccine mandate where it gives people a choice to be either tested or vaccinated is a really good middle ground where the state isn't necessarily saying you have to get vaccinated, but if you don't, you have to make sure that you're healthy if you want to do anything that is particularly risky. And of course, if private businesses prevent people from going into their business unless they're vaccinated um that's currently within their within their constitutional right to do so so uh, um, that's up to individual businesses whether they allow vaccinated people in or not um but i think a vaccine mandate with a choice is in my opinion the best route to go to not give the state unnecessary amount of power so let's continue on the topic of private businesses and what you can and can't do in a private or, or how they how they regulate what you can and cannot do in their premises. Uh, so over the last few weeks, Twitter and YouTube have suspended several several prominent individuals, including Dr. Robert Malone, Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Republican political commentator Dan Bongino, who was banned, I think, yesterday. Um, likewise, left-wing political commentators Hassan Piker and Vosh, popular Twitch streamers and, I believe, YouTubers, um, were banned from Twitch. My question is simple. What is your position on social media censorship, and should certain ideas be moderated? So my, my opinion on censorship is currently, legally, it's going to be a hard battle to change um, the the way that corporations are are able to moderate their platforms, but I think it should be in the spirit of um, the First Amendment necessarily. So, if if it's not violent, if it's not a threat um, or cause uh, harm in any way or, in, or instigate violence in any way, then the speech should be free to be said. It, it's important to protect unpopular speech because you never know when your speech specifically is going to become unpopular. So the fact that they 
uh, have complete free reign to moderate speech how they see fit, in my opinion, is a problem. Um, to combat that, I think you'd have to make them more similar to public utilities where um, they are they, they are quasi-government and quasi-company-owned uh, uh, institutions. Or you can decentralize it, but then that creates another problem of of, uh, of uh, creating echo chambers. If you decentralize it too much, you create echo chambers of different communities, and that can be problematic as well um, for allowing speech to be convincing to other people. Um, so I think I think that I think having central a centralized platform is is beneficial in a lot of ways. Uh, sorry, just came. It was That's uh, why I don't making have a lot pets. of noise. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like, like, bangs around a couple of times, it's fine. But if you bangs around a lot, then it's hard for uh, everybody to hear. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it's you have to make them similar to public utilities um, to ultimately uh, fix a lot of the problems that that exist. But I think speech should it should be in the spirit of the First Amendment. I think the First Amendment is really good in the way that it protects unpopular speech. There's a lot of things that um, Marjorie Taylor Greene said that were problematic. The last thing she got banned for was uh, promoting misinformation about um, the the vaccine, um, uh, the the reporting system. I forgot what they called it. Uh, Bears, uh, it, I believe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they, she, it was misinformation about that and how it, how um, it's perpetuating some kind of conspiratorial nonsense. Um, but it's. It, while that speech is 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 something I completely disagree with, and I think is, uh, I, I think it's it's problematic. I, it's not. I don't think it should be bannable because at the same time, eventually, something I say might be considered problematic to somebody else, and we'll get and we'll get the same level of scrutiny. And I just want everybody to be able to have as much freedom as they want to say what they want as long as it's not a direct harm or an imminent harm to other people. And Jennifer and I definitely want to thank you for that because we like our platform yeah. and we don't want to get yeah. banned because if we say something stupid one day and, and there we go, we're I, off. I'm learning a lot from other YouTubers about like protective language yeah. and that's why I throw right. in a good, these are all our opinions um, <laughs> all the time, so. Right, yeah, like, like I said, um, you know, for now, if as long as you're saying the things that are good for the current paradigm, then you'll be fine. But eventually, if you want to say things that may challenge the paradigm, even though they're, they're actually good things you want to say, but it's just a, it's just something that um, is is problematic to the way the system works now. Then they can ban you with complete discretion because their their TOS is very vague. It doesn't give them any any kind of uh, of specific standards to be held on. They can do they can do it for seemingly any reason. So it's uh, it's very dangerous to give, especially because of how much how many people use their platform, how much power they have. It's it's very dangerous to give all that power to. Like if you don't want the government to have that power, why do you want corporations who are ruled by one person or a small group of people in case of a public corporation? Why would you want to give that much power such a tiny amount of hands if you don't even want to give it to Congress, which is a much broader uh, uh, um, decision-making body? So, And banning speech or banning people from platforms, it really just radicalizes people 
anyway because they will retreat to their own echo chambers. You see a lot right. of people um, back when former President Trump was banned from Twitter, people ran over to Parler. People getting banned from uh, YouTube now are running over to Rumble. So it's not like their speech is getting banned outright. They're going to go find their own community and then their ideas aren't challenged and they're able to just work themselves up into a frenzy. No matter what side of the political aisle you are, when you're in a bubble, it's never a good thing. Yeah, so far the alternative platforms are really small. So it the 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 danger of the echo chambers aren't really uh, aren't really much of a problem right now and their speech does get stifled out in the broader public currently because of how centralized it is. But doesn't mean it's going to be that centralized in the future. And they could also become more more authoritative with their bannings and eventually create a larger alternative um, echo chamber. At the at the current moment, it's not so dangerous, but it doesn't mean it can't be in the future. So, so yeah, we I, I, to, I completely agree. Awesome. So we have ten minutes left, and we're moving on to the final segment. We'll get as many of these questions as we can. So, in your Ballotpedia survey, you wrote, "quote." Oh, so the so the final segment is explain yourself. So we found some quotes that you wrote on Ballotpedia, on Twitter, whatever. There's nothing crazy. Thank thank goodness. Thank you for that. <laughs> I feel like we're in the like final round of Family Feud where they're talking like really fast. So oh well, the questions. It's unfortunate that these questions are actually the the biggest the ones. Longest. Yeah, really. Yeah. Um, so in your Ballotpedia survey, you wrote, "quote If you are unable to provide your workers with a living wage, then you have no business being in." business. Large multinational corporations find success. So this is me talking. Large multinational corporations find success in outsourcing jobs to low wage workers across the globe. Those low wage workers wages, those low wages, of course, are often living wages in those countries. Small businesses in the U.S., on the other hand, do not have the capacity to outsource and are thus bound to a federal or state mandated minimum wage, making it difficult to compete with billion dollar companies. How do you balance mandating a federal minimum wage while staunchly opposing the super wealthy and supporting the working class American? Yeah, so the best way to do that um, would eventually, in the long term, uh, tax corporations for uh, using uh, external labor, especially ones that, uh, that undercut the wages of current Americans. It's currently, like for, in the immediate in the immediate time, you want to be able to have the state compensate small businesses for now, give them give them subsidies um, until they reach a certain size of employment, and then once they reach a certain size of employment. And they should be expected to be able to um, compete properly with larger corporations. But at the in the and that's in the media. Eventually, you want to make sure that that problem goes away by by disincentivizing corporations from using uh, labor from from places specifically like China or India, where the wages are are purposely uh, brought down specifically because their primary their most of their economy is dependent on aggregate demand. They want, they want to make sure that they can export as much as possible by um, bringing their wages down as much as possible. And this and the this has a long history from the fall of the Bretton Woods in 1942 all the way uh, to the um, the neoliberal order that existed. Sorry, the fall of Bretton Woods in the 1970s and reinstitute from from 1942 to 1972, and the and the institution of the neoliberal order that exists now. Um, globally, in the in the global economic sense, 
And so that's his long history, which I'm not going to go into because uh, for, for the sake of time. But um, the, the primary issue is the fact that wages, wages being brought down is, is a way for the United States to be competitive or the United States company to be competitive globally. And the, and the only way to maintain a consumer economy is to have low, uh, uh, cheap products for low wages. And the only way to do that is to export. Increasing wages will, increase, will eventually increase the price of products, will give everybody higher purchasing power. And the price of products are not going to go up proportionate to the price of wages. So everybody will have more purchasing power and it will be actually better for the economy. Um, it will create, it will, it will allow you, it will prevent people to be able to accumulate as much wealth um, as, as they can now, but everybody would be living a more prosperous life um, with higher wages than without, than having uh, cheap products and lower wages. So, I will add on to that. So, so following up about the wages, do you think it's more worthwhile to focus on increasing the minimum wage on a state level rather than a federal level, considering that the living wage for each state and locality is different? For instance, a $15 minimum wage would not even be a livable wage in a large city like Philadelphia or New York, for instance. Whereas if you were living in Kansas or a rural area, $15 would be viable. So do you think it's more worthwhile to focus on the minimum wage at a state level than the federal level? I think I think you can um, make adjustments on the state side where you can, um, uh, you, you can have policies where the state also... Um, uh, uses its own budget to increase the wages of its specific area. But I think there should be a, a floor, a baseline where people can't go under. Like this is where, this is the lowest possible you can go on any state, no matter what. So that way everybody has um, a, a strong foundation. And of course, like that is not going to be enough for certain states because of the, uh, the economy is different in each state. Uh, I think the state itself can compensate for that through its own budget outside of the federal minimum wage system and then uh for the and then you can also tax higher for lower states whose minimum wages um provides them with a much more purchasing power than another state like there's ways to compensate but i think there should be a federal base minimum where you can't go under this is the cheapest you can go and beyond that is um it's not allowed i think there's i think there's a lot of utility in that well if you get elected i really hope you increase my wage to <laughs> a lot higher. I, I'm always looking to make more one, money anyway. Um, well, but, seeing as you are now um, in like the owner of a business with a podcast, your wages are fundamentally are made fundamentally different now, or will be eventually um, than somebody. When who, we make money, yeah. yeah. When we make yeah. money. <laughs> <laughs> um, a labor of love right now. I would like to end on a final quote. So we live in a. And this is a quote from I, I believe your website. Uh, we live in the richest country on earth. Anybody who lives in this country, regardless of where in the country you were born, to whom you were born to, and no matter what conditions you were born in, you should have a prosperous socioeconomic upbringing. Poverty exists because we allow it to exist. It's a political decision, not a flow in someone's character. I thought that was a very nice quote to end on. Yeah, flaw. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, yeah, the, the United States, uh, it, it perpetuates this idea that if somebody is is poor, it's because of specific decisions they made 
uh, to be in that position when a lot of times there are institutional forces that encourage the cycle of poverty. Um, for example, the way that the system works as a glass ceiling rather than a, than a strong foundation where if you make too much money, all of your benefits are completely stripped from you and then you have to compensate not just for the benefits you lost, but also um, for the, for, for the, uh, uh, you, have to, you have to make enough money to compensate for the benefits you lost and also to sustain yourself, which is impossible. Eventually people go back to a flow of poverty. They hit a point where their benefits come back and then they continue that cycle over and over again. Um, and, 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 it's a, and the reason why the, our institutions are set that way is because of, of political decisions that we've made. So I think that uh, there, are, there are choices people can make that can, make, that can prevent them from going into poverty. But for the most part, the problem is the way that our society allows poverty to exist. People make mistakes all the time. People who are wealthy make mistakes all the time. But because they are wealthy, the impact is much less than somebody who exists in that cycle of poverty. I don't think they should be in that cycle because of a couple of mistakes when wealthy people make the same mistakes or worse all the time. So. so Juan, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Tell everyone out there, where can they follow you? Where, they, where can they find more information about you and your campaign? Yeah, so everything, all my social media is Juan with the number four and then Congress. My website is also Juan number four Congress. So that's how you know, .com. So you can find me everywhere using that handle. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram, I don't have a lot up right now. I actually never use social media before running for office. So um, it, it, it's it, it's a double-edged sword. It's a benefit because there's it's not like you can dig up anything from my past and clip it and and frame yeah, it in a perfect. very uh, a negative way. Yeah, but there's also there's also a problem that now I have to build up my digital presence from complete scratch. So it's a benefit and a curse at the same time. Um, but everything, uh, everything you can find me on is one number four Congress. Awesome. And thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for everyone for sticking around watching this episode. If you have questions, reach out to Juan on his website, on his Instagram, on all of his social media, ask him questions and we will see you. Oh, make sure you also follow us on all of our stuff as well. Like comment, subscribe to all the things. All the things. Right. And we will see you in the next one.